0: So, who just won? Australia or Facebook? It was only a week ago that Facebook and the Australian government locked horns over the proposed media bargaining laws. And now Facebook has backflipped, saying they'll walk back their block on Australian users sharing news on its site. So this week on Download This Show, is there a winner in this battle? Plus, NASA's Perseverance rover landed on Mars. What can we learn from this feat of science? And the audio chatting app Clubhouse has millions of new users, but perhaps most interesting is what it's meant for its Chinese users, or at least before they were shut out of the platform. All that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and we have two guests, one of which is coming to us direct from hotel quarantine, the brilliant Claire Riley, senior editor with CNET. It's lovely to have you back on the show.
1: It's nice to be back. It's um, strange circumstances recording from a hotel room, but uh, it's nice to be back on Australian shores, even if briefly.
0: To be fair, strange circumstances just sums up the entirety of how this show has been recorded for the past year, so you're in good company in that sense.
1: That's very true. Look, moving to the United States during a pandemic was an interesting choice on my part, but it's going pretty well.
0: (laughs) We're glad to have you, albeit just for this time. Uh, Alongside Claire Riley, we have psychologist, teacher, digital nutrition founder, Jocelyn Brewer. Welcome back to Download the Show.
2: Thank you very much. And
0: what a lot has changed in the past week. So last week we dedicated the show to electric cars. Uh, We picked an unusually heavy news week to do that, when, of course, Facebook within minutes of the show going online, uh, decided that they will pull all news, uh, it's at least Australian news from the Australian version of Facebook. Between then and now, they've now announced that they will gradually start returning news to the news feed. But the question is, who won? In a stalemate between the media, the Australian government and Facebook, it's a little bit unclear exactly who got what, Claire. Yeah,
1: you're right. I think uh, the news dropped that uh, Facebook was sort of uh, tentatively returning news to its platform. Uh, they released a statement. Josh Frydenberg, the Australian treasurer, released a statement. And everyone was kind of doing that um that Spider-Man, the multiple Spider-Mans pointing at each other (laughs) meme, being like, did you win? Did you win? I don't know what the situation is here. Uh, it's, It's hard to imagine that Facebook would have capitulated in a way that didn't see them winning some ground because, as I'm sure we can get into in our discussion, this isn't just an Australian battle for them. This sets a precedent which could potentially roll out across the world. So it appears Facebook won some concessions. Uh, The government was definitely positioning it as a win on their side. But I think you're right. I think it's going to... It'll be a matter of time for us to sort of see how it plays out because the government essentially proposed a number of amendments to its news media bargaining code uh, that would adjust some of the language and Facebook was happy with that. Obviously, with all legislation, it's how it's put into place, it's how it's enacted and how it exists in the real world once it passes Parliament. So that will be the measure of this
2: bargaining code as well, I think.
0: From where you stand, Jocelyn, who do you think has won and who do you think has lost? Or is maybe that not the right prism through which to be looking at this? I
2: I think it's a tricky one because it depends what you're measuring your wins or or losses by. I guess all the people who didn't put their too many eggs of their marketing, you know, into the Facebook basket has won and, and who have and own their own, you know, email newsletters and and across different channels. I think what we are discovering as humans is how much of um, our dependence is on Facebook as that, you know, one-stop shop for all the different things in our digital um, diet, I guess, and that we maybe need to uh, diversify and come back out of that um, Facebook K-hole for news if if that's (laughs) where you're getting your news, um, the 40% of Australians who rely on that to broaden our definition of what is newsworthy. And I guess that's another massive question um, that comes up for lots of people.
0: If we put aside the idea of who won and lost, there is a sort of an additional dimension to this, which is sort of brand affinity, for lack of a better term. And you'd have to say, Claire, at least from an Australian perspective, You'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who said it was a good PR stunt for for Facebook in terms of least public sentiment.
1: It was a massive own goal to be taking down the Bureau of Meteorology uh, as we saw fires across the country. Um, It was a massive own goal to have South Australia Health, ACT Health, the State and Territory Health Department Facebook pages being taken offline just as we're about to have a vaccine rollout, the swiftest and biggest vaccine rollout in the country's history, poor move. And I think Facebook on a PR level, it's it's ingrained in our lives, right? We love it or we love to hate it. Whatever the case may be, pretty much all of us use it. <laughs> 40% of us get our, face, our news via Facebook. But I think ever since Cambridge Analytica and some of the big privacy uh, scandals the company has had, people have this very sort of... Um, difficult relationship with the platform. They know that it's baked into their lives, but they don't always love that. And so when this happened, when it was, we're not just taking your news, but there's this very blanket approach that has kind of knocked out a whole bunch of other pages. Everyone immediately had a reason to kind of be annoyed at Facebook and it was very easy to point to that um, and kind of ignore some of the bigger issues so that was strategically poor move on Facebook's part but yeah I think a lot of people don't understand the ins and outs of this coming back to Australia I was sort of wrapping my head around this this code having not been here for the development of it and you know through the ACCC them starting things off and trying to understand you know who's paid what who's got deals going with the different big tech companies. But if you look at what the 7 o'clock news is doing, the two-minute piece that they're going to do, it was all about the sites that got pulled down. Suddenly the world didn't have access to news from Australia, which is incredibly disappointing, and suddenly Australians didn't have access to the day-to-day information that they need. And I think a lot of people had that reckoning of saying, oh, geez, (laughs) maybe I need to stop being so reliant on one site.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Uh, Jocelyn, do you get a sense that people are, both individuals and also media companies, are recalibrating their relationship with Facebook right now?
2: Absolutely. I think we've been doing that since Cambridge Analytica and if not that, before. Um, What I found really interesting about this was it was so blanket given that they, you know, they can twiddle lots of little dials to target us with um, advertising and all the logarithmic stuff that happens yet they had such a blanket approach and you know if you watch the social dilemma apparently there's two guys standing at some kind of control thing <laughs> um operating what we're getting yes,
3: um, they're very accurate not at all yeah, a metaphor at all
2: maybe being able to um be a little bit more sensitive with this in order for them to make their point without that kind of own goal um situation happening so we have been rethinking that that dependence on putting all our eggs into the facebook basket and again it's it's it, you know as Claire said baked into our lives and we really need to rethink I guess how we how we use it lots of young people obviously only get an account because that's a way to it's it's almost like a part of your um uh, you know, right of passage, a digital right of passage, you have that account, but for many, you know, younger people, they're not using it in the same way. You still just have it. So.
0: Claire, you're in an unusual position where obviously you're an Australian who spent most of the last year overseas and you'll have seen this did make headlines all around the world when Facebook did shut off the tap to Australia. How is this recent development actually being received in terms of both the shutdown and the legislation itself? Because I, I know Scott Morrison's been quite keen to sort of internationalise it. He's he's constantly pointed out that other countries are looking at legislation, if not like this, but in the same vein as this. How have other countries taken it?
1: Well, it's interesting. Anytime news comes out of Australia and into the international sphere, there's <laughs> there's always someone using the phrase down under, um, which is, you know, let's just let's just pull back on that. But also, as you say, this is potentially setting a precedent, and I think a lot of people who watch big tech watch what happens in other countries outside Silicon Valley because they can be uh, the canaries in the coal mine, so to speak. Mm. Uh, one big example of that is security and privacy legislation. Australia is part of a group called the Five Eyes, which includes countries like the UK and the US. So big countries that set a lot of agendas on security. And Australia can has brought in legislation in the past that then has been sort of used as, as precedent in that respect. So uh, countries like the US, the UK, you know, groups like the EU, they are all watching what's happening in Australia mm-hmm. because if legislation is successfully introduced, that becomes a case for them to make. But if Facebook successfully quashes legislation, which... I think in this case they have had a lot of the amendments play to their favour, then suddenly they're able to get more confidence and get more backing to kind of quash similar attempts in other regions. So it's it's very interesting and it'll be a lot of countries will be watching this to see how it plays out because how Facebook manages news and what it allows on its platform is a really big question. And, and to speak to Jocelyn's point earlier, excuse me, I think a lot of people were very upset that these dials, there are these dials and levers that can be pulled behind the scenes, but apparently Facebook wasn't pulling them. (laughs) And I know one of the big stories that came out of this was, well, how did they allow the Christchurch shooting to go on on Facebook, but suddenly they can turn off all news very quickly? That was a big question people asking what control do they have and how are they exercising that control?
0: Just staying on the on the social space for here a second, um, a handful of technology giants that have been operating in Australia, including uh, Facebook and Google and Microsoft and TikTok and Twitter, um, have recently agreed to a new Australian code of practice on information and disinformation, which again kind of falls into this same space. The question is, um, Jocelyn, Is it actually going to do what it sets out to do?
2: Oh, like all of these laws, it's really hard to measure until it it comes into, you know, legislation and people are playing. Um, They can sign up to some of these agreements and then, you know, what happens in real life is a a whole other bunch of coconuts, so to speak. So I, I love this concept and I think it buddies off some of the work that First Draft News have done around misinformation, disinformation and malinformation and this concept of um, information disorder. It's absolutely something that, you know, we need to be very, very conscious of and teaching, not just ourselves, but, you know, young people as well, as we um, navigate our way through such complex um, infobese times.
0: If you've got something that's demonstrably false, you're in no way compelled to remove it it just doesn't seem like it has a lot of teeth to it.
1: Well, it's interesting. I think the first principle, if I was looking at it, it was uh, freedom of expression. And I think that's a, a concept that really underpins a lot of this friction in social media platforms, especially because a lot of these companies are based out of the US. And seeing the conversation around freedom of speech, freedom of expression, that is so strong in the United States. And that that underpins everything in a way that I don't think we really, we understand here and we believe in free speech in Australia, but it doesn't run through our blood in a kind of a defiant way, almost in the way that it does in the United States. So I think it's quite interesting. They're setting things up uh, with a view towards them. This is an Australian code, but I can see the global fingerprints on it. Um, I don't know. It's it seems interesting to me that it's opt in it seems it seems a little bit toothless and as i said earlier with facebook it's how these how these codes how these bills roll out in the real world what i think is so staggering is that 5 years ago we were in a totally different media landscape and totally different landscape when it comes to misinformation. Um, we just saw a, a president leave the US who was, his two word slogan was fake news. Five years ago, that wasn't really, like we think back to then, that wasn't really something we were talking about every day. It's so such an it's amazing. Time. To, <laughs> right. It was an innocent time in a way, but things are moving so quickly. And you kind of forget that because everything is happening all the time and it's overwhelming. But, Five years ago, very different. Ten years ago, incredibly different. So these things happen swiftly and they kind of uh – play out and they they kind of grow and change and evolve in the real world once they're actually kind of out in the meat space uh so i think what we have on paper is going to be very different to what we see playing out in social media in two years time when this uh news media bargaining code is in place when this misinfo uh opt-in code is in place It'll be really interesting to see, oh, okay, well, we just don't have these kinds of news outlets anymore or, yeah, it's just accepted that uh, misinformation is rife on certain platforms. You know, the fact that news was banned and yet uh, 5G causes cancer, Facebook pages were still up, that says a lot Um, and I think we're all going to have to be very discerning with how we engage with news online going forward
0: download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are Jocelyn Brewer, psychologist, teacher and the founder of Digital Nutrition and Claire Riley, senior editor with CNET, uh, usually based in the US, currently based in a hotel quarantine for another couple of days. Now, the last week has seen incredible developments in humanity's exploration of Mars. We've seen the Perseverance rover land on the surface of Mars in what has been decri- described as seven minutes of terror. Its job is to find evidence of life, but there is an enormous amount of technology packed onto that rover, Claire, that um, is really quite groundbreaking.
1: Oh, this is my favourite story of the week, of the year, Mark. Um, it's the year is so two months exciting. old.
0: Don't pick too early. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. yeah, but in 2020's time, that's actually 12 years. So, right. um, you know, I, I'm at kind of Titanic lady age now. Um, <laughs> I love this story because... The, rover, the last rover we landed, Curiosity, kind of had to... It was smart in the way it landed, but it had a pretty big landing area. The fact that I was able to know what this rover was going to do before it even did it because NASA are just like, yep, it's going to it's gonna enter at this trajectory, it's going to do this, it's going to navigate itself down and find the best spot because it's got onboard maps so it's going to use a camera and go, hmm, that looks good. It was a fantastic landing. It happened perfectly. You know, we saw the footage come out this week of the landing, the parachute deploying, all of that amazing video footage. So exciting. Uh, I, I, you know, I was in my room just kind of cheering at my computer like a loser. Um, but you're right, it's the technology that's on this that is super, super exciting because of what it's going to open up for future missions. So the rover landed. I mean, the fact that it was able to land in Jezero Crater. Now, this is an area that's got boulders, it's got cliffs. It's kind of dicey in terms of landing a car-sized rover, but because of all of that intelligent navigation equipment, they were able to land in an area that's super interesting geologically speaking because if you want to land in a flat spot, that's fine, but nothing's really happened in flat spots. They're not (laughs) interesting for science. Uh, What they've done here is land in a really juicy spot, even though it looks really dry. Um, They are actually looking for signs of ancient life because this was an area that was likely to have water in the past so they're going to drill down they're going to get cores of uh, rock samples they're going to keep them in a little cache on board we'll be able to see the rock samples because there's cameras that are going to kind of track all that for us we're going to get so much footage it's going to be so good it's a media dream um but they're going to send those samples back to Earth, so we kind of know what we're getting into. When you know Elon Musk is like, "Let's move to Mars," and then NASA will be like, "Guys, yeah, okay, well, we actually know what's up there because of all of these, all of these um, rover experiments we've done." It's it's a kind of a, a feat of science, uh, and I'm really excited about it. And one more thing, I, I know I'm kind of going on Mars around No, no, no. no I, your, your enthusiasm
0: here. is very infectious.
1: <laughs> I'm glad. Um, they have a little helicopter drone installed underneath the belly of the rover. Now, this is called the Ingenuity Helicopter. Last year, I actually got to speak to the woman who was leading the entire helicopter project, talk to her about how you build a drone for Mars that comes under two kilos. They had to kind of shave off all of the weight. They had to make sure that it was going to be able to fly in the Martian atmosphere, which is about 1% the density of the Earth's atmosphere, so very, very light That is going to happen within probably about two months. We're going to hopefully get the first test flight and that will be the first time that we've flown a a kind of a a human-built spacecraft on another world and instead of a rover which kind of just drives around like a little car and just sees everything at this level, you're suddenly going to have an aerial dimension on Mars. You're going to be able to spot things out and, you know, 50, 100 years from now, that's going to be normal. We'll just be flying drones around Mars just checking out cool stuff. Um, It's... It's a super, super exciting mission and there's a lot of amazing stuff that's going to come out of it and I'm done.
0: (laughs) I feel compelled to ask, Jocelyn, are you anywhere near as excited as Claire is about Mars Discoveries?
2: Uh, going to Mars and scuba diving rate amongst my top things that I'm not that excited <laughs> about, um, so I'm glad Claire has picked up the slack on that right. enthusiasm piece. As, as an ex-geography teacher, I think the, probably the most interesting part were the biosignatures and the Jezero Crater, which is between 3.5 and 3.9 billion years old, and the ex-river delta that it, it was, so all the bits of um, organic and non-organic matter that they're going to bring back. I, I read, though, that it's going to take until 2031 for all of the samples to rearrive. that seemed like a really long time like even to get to mars and back so well um,
0: I, I actually am kind of curious as to what they expect to find and also like if they do find evidence of you know microbial or bacterial life on mars what does it actually mean claire like what, what will that sort of illuminate about our place in the universe
1: Well, it means that that's obviously the first step to the lizard people, um, which, you know, we can find their underground sugar caves. Uh, No, I think it's a sign that one, maybe we're not all that special here on Earth, and, and two, that it shows signs of water being there. That's a huge scientific discovery uh, potentially for human habitation, but it's also important to be excited about scientific discovery in and of itself. I think not just what it means for what we can get out of other planets, you know, great. We can go and mine it. Like, let's just hold your horses. I, I think that potentially what we're going to get out of this mission is going to pave the way for future missions and it, it just tells us about it tells us about how Mars works uh, and you know as our nearest neighbor that that's fascinating you know some of the um, uh, the 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 Mars drill mission and the name of the mission completely escapes me now which is super helpful uh, what's really interesting with what they're doing on Mars is that they're actually seeing how the planet works they'll be able to do micro measurements like how does it shift on its axis how what is its role in the entire solar system so the, the tiny experiments they do have these huge implications, which is which is just, I guess, fascinating for all of us and, and really exciting because we're going to, the kids growing up now, for them, travelling in space is just going to be a, a a possibility that wasn't really a possibility when we were growing up. You knew about astronauts, but I was pretty sure I wasn't going to become an astronaut. But I think with the the new era of private space discovery, it's just opening it up to so many more people.
0: Download This Show is the name of the program. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guests are Claire Riley and Jocelyn Brewer, and it is easily the most talked about app of 2021 so far. It is a live streaming audio app that marries... I mean, I want to say the worst of social media or the worst of podcasting, but I could well be wrong on this. Jocelyn Brewer, introduce me to Clubhouse.
2: Clubhouse is um, a massive time suck, as I can attest to in the last month. Um, I wish I had never come across it. Um, But it's basically like chat roulette meets a live podcast with all the hope and vigour of, like, MySpace in 2006. I don't think I've written an online profile with as much excitement Um, Partly because you actually get space to write a bio, as in Clubhouse. Um, So it's audio only, invite only, Apple only. It's very exclusive. Um, Apparently there's about 2 million downloads. There's still only eight employees. It crashes a lot. And golly, there are some big conversations happening in it. I can't actually follow a lot of um, people that I would follow on other platforms. You actually have to kind of, unless they're in your contact list, as in your phone contact list, you're not going to be able to find them as easily. So you are kind of, I'm I'm noticing I'm developing new communities. Um, They're not just a replication of my Twitter community or my Instagram community. Um, And some, yeah, really fascinating spaces like... Has somebody who's had a baby on there like live streamed the audio no, of their birth? No. Yes.
0: No. Yes. And I've had
2: a baby, and I chose not to go into that room.
0: Like a 1950s yeah. husband, you sat outside yeah. and smoked a yes, cigar. just a sat gun. outside.
2: Yeah. So, and silent rooms where you just jump in, everyone's on mute. You read profiles and follow one another. Um, that again just kind of indicates, I guess, that the vanity metrics of a platform like that, simply the number of followers that you have as opposed to the quality of the engagement is still a really big deal.
0: So you the combination of you log on, you see these different chats that are happening that are scheduled, you can jump into them. this They're quite discombobulating because if you don't know all the players, which is sort of part of the thing, right? It's mm-hmm. like these big, long conversations with lots of people sort of all inning. It's actually quite overwhelming. It occurred to me that like, Everything you dislike about all office Zoom meetings but without the faces to recognise who's talking. Well,
1: look, you say everything about Zoom um, but without the faces. I think everything about Zoom but I don't have to wear pants, you know, <laughs> I don't have to, like, look good for Mate, everyone. What are you doing wearing pants on Zoom?
0: Thing. Don't tell the camera down. It's fine. <laughs> yeah
1: true um, I think a, a good way that my colleague described it was which I quite like is uh, podcasts meet um, a kind of a, a convention or maybe like a TED Talks where you go and you just kind of dip into sessions I might not know anything about elephant poaching in Africa but I'm gonna dip into the session and learn a lot about it uh, I think that's really cool and exciting to kind of expand your mind um, obviously because it started in Silicon Valley though you know there's not a great diversity of voices necessarily at the st- start um but there have been some really agenda setting talks Elon Musk uh, Mark Zuckerberg being in there um of course Mark Zuckerberg being the head of a platform that would rival Clubhouse so you know he's probably doing a bit of market research while he's in there um to me as someone in media it was exciting as a really low barrier to entry to kind of just have conversations without you know being a person who's uh you know I'm another white person setting up a podcast you know um I I think it's really cool and engaging. I love the idea of it whether it maintains that kind of cool dip in, dip out as they grow, that will be really interesting to see. But I think it's got a lot of potential and I think it's just a bit different. You know, I I get a lot of press releases saying, like, we're a new social platform. And I'm like, you're essentially Twitter or you're essentially Facebook, but all my friends aren't on this platform. So why would I join it? Whereas this is offering something different. Um, And what's interesting was I read a a piece about um, marketers. How can we get the most out of Clubhouse? And it's like, what would your brand say? say on Clubhouse. If your brand was a person, I was like, I hate this. Let me close this window. Um, But I think it's going to be interesting as with any platform, uh, media groups want to get on, brands want want to get on there and kind of share their voice. So I'm really keen to see how it plays out.
0: Well, one thing actually on that, back in February, China banned clubhouse because I had thousands of users sharing all kinds of stories about things like Xinjiang and Tiananmen Square, stuff that doesn't necessarily get talked about that often. And actually, Bang Xiao, who's from the ABC's Asia Pacific newsroom, has actually been investigating this over the last couple of months. And we managed to get him on the line to explain what it was like seeing and hearing Chinese users talking about this since the ban.
3: Chinese people have used Clubhouse as a platform to discuss about some political sensitive contents, such as re-education camps in Xinjiang and the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Tens of thousands of netizens from China used the platform as a channel to host genuine conversations with everyday people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, and around the world, listening to responses that were different from Beijing's narratives. I heard a young Chinese woman's apology to a Uyghur woman. She was very emotional and couldn't continue her speech. She apologized to the Uyghur woman for their family's experiences, as well as not being able to help. I also heard some residents from Beijing sharing their experiences during the Tiananmen Square Massacre, and they discussed about using tactics to avoid being monitored by Chinese internet police.
0: So that just gives you, I think, an example of just different ways this thing can be used. That is Bang Ziao from the ABC's Asia Pacific Newsroom. He has written extensively on this. I do encourage you to go have a look at that on the ABC News website. But I guess, Jocelyn, it is, I mean, for I agree with everything you've said about the, the platform, but it is interesting seeing how um, for that brief moment of time it was available. It could be used to do things that you really couldn't do in other uh, environments, I guess.
2: Absolutely. It's such an incredible window for people who have been, you know, literally banned from almost any source of democratic news there is and in stark contrast um to the fact that australia's kind of had a bit of a tizzy fit because for a week we couldn't get our news from one particular massive platform you know i think that just really that contrast is is worth pointing out i guess that um we take for granted our ability to participate in these in in these platforms and for you know 2 billion people, that's just not on the table.
0: Mm. All right, we are out of time. Hey, Claire Riley from CNET, it was an absolute joy to have you back on the show. We'd love to get you back again. Good luck with the last few days of hotel quarantine.
2: Thank you for
1: having me, Mark. It was great to be here.
0: And Jocelyn Brewer, it is an absolute joy as always to have you back on Download This Show. Thank you. And with that, I will leave you. Thank you so much for listening to the program. We'll catch you next week with a brand new episode of Download This Show.